My normal tone is very soft. <laughs> so I hope everyone's doing good. Um, it was nice to sit in here. I, I was just really sweet. I bet this place has a lot of history. Huh? A lot of gatherings have happened, a lot of prayers. You know, these old buildings, is just the devotion is kind of seeped into the wood. <laughs> and then we sit on it, and it's nice, you know? <laughs> I like that. This is a good, it's very, it's really sweet. So I, um, as I wanted to spend some time talking about meta practice, and um, that's for how many people have done meta here? Okay. How many people like to do meta? I mean, be honest. <laughs> how many people hate the practice even the first time? <laughs> yeah, that's good. So people have kind of a love-hate relationship to meta. It's um, and just to just explain, it's just you know I want to just talk about why it's um, I feel like it's critical for your vipassana practice. I think it's it's like there's no other way to advance or go through the stages of insight unless you have this kind of foundation of love and compassion. Mostly, it's love and compassion towards oneself. It's towards the mind. So a lot of times people, when they go on retreat, they'll hear somebody going, okay, now we're going to love ourselves and wish yourself well. Maybe I sounded like that. I probably did. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I, you know, there's really no other approach. We could kind of do it more warrior-like. But I hope that I can kind of get you to sort of understand why the, the function of it actually as really as wisdom. You know, love, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's so corny just sitting there saying nice things about yourself. It's not working anyway. You know, they'll, they'll have like this kind of, you know, I guess they don't think it works. Maybe that's it. You know, like it doesn't really help. But I want to just talk about a few things. And for some of you, you I've mentioned these things before because I feel like it's kind of a, well, my contribution to Western Dharma in some way is this really strong emphasis on compassion. And of course, other teachers have that, and we hear this in different traditions, especially in the Tibetan tradition. You know, there's huge emphasis. And for years, I didn't really fully get it. Now I actually do. Why there's so much emphasis on the heart, opening the heart, being able to access um, kindness, because uh, Westerners, I think... Our minds are wired differently. And even if you weren't this, maybe, if you were raised here, you definitely have that. <laughs> so somebody might say, but I'm from Asia. I'm not from, you have it, right? If you, if you, if you were kind of raised in our culture. But it's this very uh, strong, self-critical view that we have of ourselves so, for instance, I'm getting ready to go on this retreat, and a lot of my time I'll spend in Asia, and a lot of the time I'll spend with the Tibetan communities. And um, they're always curious about Westerners' practice, you know, but they don't really have a self-hatred the way we do. In fact, they'll be like, my life is so great, I get to practice Dharma, and maybe they only have like $5 to their name, I mean, very little material, but they'll say, isn't this great, I have a precious human life, you know, I feel sorry for Westerners, you know, and, and they think, they actually have this confidence, I, I was like, 
wow, even, even the old ladies have this kind of confidence, right? I'll see them doing practice, you know, maybe 70, 80 years old with this sense of confidence, like, you know, they don't really, if I tried to say, you know, when I try to explain or the Western psyche, I don't think they have any, they don't really have a clue of why we would think negatively towards ourselves or we would hold negative views or we would be critical. They would say, use this life. This is so great. You're so blessed, right? But we don't always feel blessed. And that's interesting for me. And I also feel that this practice of meta actually can transform some of these core um, stuck roots that we have that actually hinder our ability to practice insight. So what it does is because we can't open actually. So we kind of kid ourselves a little bit. We go along, we might do a couple of years and have good progress. We, we reduce our stress. And that's nice, right? All of you want less stress. But at some point you're going to want more than stress reduction. You're going to read the text and you're going to say, what about freedom? Or you're going you're gonna to get more, you're going to say, I want more. And what happens is people tend to hit a plateau right around then. And they might start looking for another teacher or another lineage or maybe I need to do Sufi dancing now. Yeah, this Dharma. I don't know. Right? And they go here and they go there. And it's okay, right? We could try a lot of different things. And maybe I need to do something else, you know. But then we might come back to this. We keep coming back because of the core teaching is pulling us back. There's this way of looking at life through the lens of of the Dharma through the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, right? It's like, wait, but this is true. I can see this for myself. So what about the fruits of the practice? When do we experience that? So when I was, I I talk a lot about this when I was in my teacher training. I was really lucky because I got to, and my training's been over for a couple years now, but for, when I was very young, I started training early with Jack. And I was sitting in all his interviews. Maybe some of you I've, I've seen there. Um, and I would just observe, and if anybody has been, you know, in counseling or psychology, a lot of your training is observation, right? You're, you're taking notes, you're, it's like anthropology for the mind, it's very interesting. And it was such an honor and such a pleasure, actually, to be uh, a part of that. So people in one-month retreat, two-month retreat, sometimes three-, four-month retreat if I went to the East Coast, I would hear about what was happening in their mind, and this is very fascinating for me because it, I, I'm also a practitioner. And so after a few years of this, I started to become, uh, I don't know if the word was worried, but I was like, well, does the Dharma work? <laughs> I mean, I saw a lot, loads of suffering. I did. I, thought, I mean, we we're just, you know, it's so intense for me, others. But at a certain point at maybe a little bit later, I started to see people who were progressing. And it was a small minority of people on every retreat, longer retreats. And I started to notice the qualities that they had. And they would have this confidence. They would have this innate kind of compassion, right? It would be this sense of being like, yes, it's hard, but I'm meeting the moment, right? And often they'd have tears coming, Right, and they'd be seeing the truth, but they'd be this. There would just be this devotion and this like warm-hearted energy, 
you know, and they would say, you know, I'm, I'm loving myself through this process. This is so hard. And maybe they were going through sorrow or fear. They were just letting things go, but they were able to meet that mind with this kind of warmth that's needed. Right? Because when we meet the mind with just war all the time, we get nowhere. What we get is a war. And we can't progress. Actually, we don't even like meditation anymore. Right? We sit down, we feel this struggle. Right? We sit down, we don't feel these feelings um, of being able to actually let go of something. Right? So to be a, actually go through some type of stage of insight or real freedom, you know the big thing you have to, that has to happen is this letting go. Like letting go of trauma, letting go of wrong views, distorted perception. Right? We can't actually do that unless there's some part of us willing to surrender. Right? We have to be willing to allow things to be revealed. We have to learn how to meet the insane part of our mind with tremendous love and compassion. Like it actually can't be met any other way after observing my own mind. And I've been on retreats probably three years of my life has been in silent retreat observing my own mind. Just different durations. So... As I started to develop this quality in myself, I started to see a real transformation in my progress and mindfulness and seeing how real change happens and then seeing it with others and also seeing the obstacles. So the practice of metta is really a gift to us, actually. This is a profound practice, and, it, and somehow I feel that it's, um, like again, my duty to kind of share about it and encourage people because you might practice it a little bit, you might not know anything about it, but it's, um, its nature is to transform, right, the heart. We want to become warm-hearted people towards ourselves. We want to transform this negativity that we hold, particularly against ourselves. That's the brutal part. Do you know what I mean by this? This is kind of I do notice this. There's words inner critic, uh, the, you know, self-hatred, and, and, you know, it's all these different kind of words for it. You know, and, and a prolonged period of that leads to depression, leads to anxiety, leads to actually personality disorders. Years and years of chronic thinking in this way actually creates illness. It's also quite serious. Something I'm writing about that just have been seen and all the different psychological disorders is like what's happening with this energy. So for me, it's, it's a topic of exploration because I see it even happening with very young kids at Spirit Rock, working with younger ch- people. I'll think, oh my God, this child should have everything. Their parents are meditators. They live in Marin, you know, they go to <laughs> Waldorf school. Isn't that supposed to be advanced, you know? And then I look on their, they come on retreat and it's like, oh no, they're anorexic. Oh no, they're suicidal. Oh no. It's like it's starting already, right? They're ingesting something that is in the field, right? Um, so that's why this quality of metta is really, really profound. Now, metta practice is a purification practice, and it's set out in this great text called the Visuddhimagga, which actually, the Visuddhimagga is one of the core texts that we, where Vipassana has kind of grown out of this text. This is written in the ninth century. It takes all the text from the Pali Canon. It's about this thick. <laughs> it takes all these different pieces and it talks about it being its path of purification. It's a purification of the heart, right? So 
What metta does is it purifies three things. The hardest thing you'll ever do actually is engage in a love practice. When people, as I teach many metta retreats at Spirit Rock and all around, and they, I cannot even believe what happens on these retreats. I mean, they're shamanic. I mean, there's all kinds of things, asthma attacks, vomiting, purging, uh, trips to the hospital, dreams, like just it, it, all of them. People think that they're going to go on like, oh, I'm going to go to Spirit Rock, seven days of love. And it's like all hell breaks loose, right? Because in some way what you're doing with that practice is you're going into the underworld. Anything that's in the obstruction to that arises. Anything that's not of that, it's almost like you shine a light on all the places that, you know, it's like you go into your garage after years, you know, and there's just stuff in there, right? (laughs) And you turn the light on, it's a little scary, right? And so that's what we're doing in meta practice, actually. And this was a practice that the Buddha gave as a protection to monks. He had started giving it. It's something practiced a lot in Burma. Right, obviously, by the Tibetan communities, compassion practice, love practice, they're just ongoing. You know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, always says, My religion is kindness. What is yours? Like, what do you practice? You know, sometimes the Dharma is like, in the end, it's all about a kind heart and a kind mind, a beautiful mind, a mind that's filled with kindness and, you know, nonviolence. That's really what the Dharma is. It's a way of nonviolence. It's a way of peace, non-killing, non-stealing, you know, all these good qualities. We're transforming ourselves. So metta practice purifies three things very intensely. One is pure hatred. So when I say, who here hates the metta practice, it was kind of a joke, but people come on retreat and they hate the metta practice. I, they, they run out. And they're like, oh, God. You know, and over a few days, I'll go, okay, I can do a little bit, right? And I find that so interesting, right? The resistance to just wishing ourselves well. So what happens is that it brings up hatred, not just a little bit of hatred, but rage, right? You start saying, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe. And on a meta retreat at Spirit Rock or any center, you're doing that from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night. Wishing well, wishing. It's like a reprogramming. It's a reboot, right, of this, the view that we, what we say every, all day, that, you know, we're mostly aggressive all day from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, right? So it's like a reprogramming of that. So this intense hatred can come. So that's okay. I'm always happy, actually, for people when they experience that because we can work with that. That's purification. The second thing that metta purifies in the mind much more kind of, um, I think, more dangerous on some level for me and others is this profound numbness. Numb. Nothing's getting in. I feel nothing. I feel nothing. I feel nothing. I do this practice. I feel nothing. Somebody says they love me. I feel nothing. Right? I'm acting. Not a lot of people will say these things when they're being, you know, it's a private conversation. Like they'll say, I don't, I can't. And often over days, what they'll do is they'll report the same thing. This just happened. I just ended a people of color retreat. I was Sunday. And people, again, we were, I was focusing a lot on meta on that retreat. 
again, they reported this steel-like case over this area of the body. They'll say it comes from here, probably down here. And they'll, they'll say something's locked right here, and they'll point to it. This happens person after person. Some energy surrounding you know, our heart, some energy that surrounds, it seems to be the top of the body. And it, it, it's like nothing's getting in. Right, And usually after day five or six on a meta retreat, some big burst happens. That's kind of why I say it's shamanic. And then suddenly there's a gap in that wall and it goes in. And they're like, oh, this is what kindness is. Oh, and they're almost like, thank God, right? I feel it for myself. And I feel this like what it's like to really genuinely wish well. To me, that's heartbreaking in a way. It's like, and good, I'm happy that that happened, but at the same time, it's like, wow, this person is a microcosm of consciousness, right? Of, of somehow with like Western minds, mine included. Although I've worked on meta so much, it's, I feel like a lot of those, that steely case, I don't have that anymore, but I, I definitely went through a period like that. And then the third thing that it purifies is a sorrow. A deep sense of sorrow. So some people try to do meta and they just tears fall, fall. They just keep falling. I think there's something about when you see your true nature and how beautiful you are, you, you catch a glimpse of it. It breaks your heart how hard you were on yourself, right? Like the, the ignorance, it's almost like you blame somebody for doing something and then they say, and then you find the object that you're looking for and they're like, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, right? But maybe you, or you've done something really unskillful to someone else. It's almost like you see that about yourself and then it kind of breaks your own heart, right? You're like, ah, oh, I'm such a beautiful being deep, deep down, right? I, I, there's so much care and love, right? So this hardness, it, it becomes a little bit overwhelming. So it produces sorrow, so the meta practice in itself is goes with mindfulness because what leads to concentration? Does anyone know? Happiness. <laughs> Happiness leads to concentration. So a mind filled with kindness, calm, and happy naturally sits longer, naturally collects easier, right? I mean, try to meditate when you're, you know, in the middle of a fight, right? It's like you can't, right? It's like the mind sits longer. It gets calmer. You don't really want to get up. If your mind's filled with metta and happiness, do you really want to stop your practice? Not really. It's usually we get up because we're, we're having a struggle. Some kind of fight has arisen in the mind, right? Or we get we, a torment, you know, anger or boredom or something arises. But when the mind is calm and clear, and if it has a certain amount of happiness, we can sit longer. So sitting longer leads to more insight, right? Because we're able to rest in the present moment. See, that's the problem. When our mind is filled with a lot of aggression, we actually don't know how to be present. We can, small moments of time, but, um, and that's the plateau, Right? We, reach, we kind of reach a, a point where something actually has to shift on the inside to go deeper, to see more, and to let go of more. So I wanted to um, just encourage people to take a look at the practice again because 
I've noticed just people who have done it, it has been a huge boost in their mindfulness, right? They're able to feel more at peace with themselves. They're able to actually live more in the present moment. And this is key. We want to live awake. We want to we feel the fruits of the practice. We want to be able to be in our body, right? We don't always want to be trying to get away. So this is key. So I was curious about if there's any questions. I think for the last few minutes, that might be nice because I've just shared a lot. But I know you all know a lot about practice. Howie gives great talks, I know, on love all the time. And uh, I don't know if he's given any lately on just the core meta practice, but I just felt inspired to keep every group that I go to to keep telling people that this is a potential to really be of great benefit. It's a medicine that um, can transform in some way and be... Uh, helpful for you. But it happens over time. It's drop by drop. But the more that you can incline your mind to kindness and compassion, the more powerful, the more powerful force it is for you and actually the people that are in your life. It's not just for you. When any I see anyone doing meta practice, I'm like, thank you on behalf of all beings, right? Your kindness helps me. Even seeing your kindness. Also, I just want to say the person who, when I was sitting here, the person who has made the donation to cover the class, I started to do metta for you because just that's a kind thing. And even to see kindness, generosity, makes doesn't, if you see someone being kind, how does that affect you? It's powerful, right? You see someone sharing, you see someone genuine in that moment. It's like, oh, it, so our practices are interwoven. So if we're sick, we're sick together. If we're filled with self-hatred, that hatred is permeates all of us. We all, we all get affected by that. So I, of course, would always encourage uh, us to, as a community, work with these qualities of love and compassion. So I stop there and see if anyone... I'm very much like a Q&A kind of person. Right, so if someone has a question about metta... Compassion. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. I'll say it, uh, repeat it. So he's saying he does a lot of meta practice, but how do you deal with the kind of mainstream culture, which maybe is like body obsessed or this or that? It's kind of, what do you do with your time? Was that it? Yes, we do live in a very interesting culture. It proposes a lot of challenges, and it's school. You know, like, that's the beautiful thing. And it is hard in the beginning. The first, the first few years of any type of practice, we're almost like, you know, I was walking along, I parked over here, and I saw one of those little trees planted by the Friends of the Urban Forest, I think, or the, what was the name of that? There's a little, yeah, Friends of the Urban 
And then it's like, oh, I stopped and I looked at it. It was a little baby one, right? And it had all these supports around it. So in the beginning, we're like that. We need a lot of support because we are more susceptible to kind of, ah, okay, we go and, you know, we fall into that, right? Next thing you know, we're obsessed about something. And we will fall into that. But then after a period of time where you really practice the Dharma and you really kind of hit a certain stride with that and some letting go has really happened, you're like a giant redwood, right? Your roots go very deep. And you you can't, no little storm is going to blow that, right? It's going to have to be something massive to to move a tree that size. So you kind of just trust in that. In the beginning, it is hard. And when we have a Dharma practice and we we live in, in, in a city like San Francisco or we have friends that aren't on that it's, it is, it's really hard. I work with people a lot around this. How do they, and over time, it's just through the purification, our life shifts. And suddenly, all the community that you need that is an inspiration to point you more towards truth starts to appear, not delusion. You know, so we, we do have that. I used to go on long retreats when I was young and then worry when I got home, like, oh no, all my friends are at home playing drinking games. What am I going to do? But now it's not that way, you know. <laughs> so you kind of trust. Just trust in that. And it's good. You're here. This is a nice community. So, yeah. So, like, practicing basically saying those phrases. Yes. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Okay, so like there's practice, she's like you're sitting and you're saying the phrases. Okay, so one of the things is that is that is a core part of the practice. So this is a good point since we just have a few minutes to really clarify what, because this is a piece where the phrases, people don't want to be saying things, it feels conceptual. So really what you do is you visualize yourself with the meta. Or sometimes people can't visualize very well. Just, just getting a sense of yourself. You can put your hand on your heart or, your, or touch your hand. Or you can put a picture of yourself on the altar. Sometimes I tell people if their minds are particularly sticky. Use a small, a childlike image. Find one when you're six, when you're seven. It's very hard to be aggressive to that image. right? Because you see the beauty there. It's just clear. Um, so we do initially start with the phrases, and we say phrases over and over. May I be happy, may I be safe and protected, may I be healthy. We say may I be happy because all beings want to be happy. right? Even the ants on the ground want happiness. Like if you try to chase them, they run. right? There's a sense of like, hey, I'm just living here, living my life. You know, I don't want to be squished. They, there's a certain consciousness actually in that, right? So we, we just like that. So we wish that for ourselves. May I be happy? Yeah, this is the path of happiness. The Dharma is the path to lasting happiness. That's the key. So we wish that. And then we wish, may I be safe and protected? Because if you love something, you protect it. Right? So if you had a little puppy, you'd be very like, okay, don't eat that cord. Don't do that. Don't run under. You'd be like, safe, protect. You'd be concerned. So we like that towards ourselves. May I be safe and protected, like you would care for a child or anything that you cared about. Your body, may I be healthy and strong, we say that, because this body, if it's sick or suffering, it's, it's really hard. 
right? And if we're well, and, and so we say, may I be healthy and strong. And then may I live with ease and well-being, we say to the present moment, really. Whatever is happening, may I live with ease, even if it's difficult. So traditionally, you can say the phrases over and over again, but for some people, the phrases are just a way into the emotion. The phrases for some people are, I don't say the phrases that much after a certain point, maybe a few times, and then the energy is there, right? So you, you can actually use the phrases until you feel a certain kind of energy there. Right? And so sometimes you might not feel the meta for yourself. So use something easy like your cat, your dog, a tree, a child. You know, when I teach meta to young people, I'll say, I'll use like, you see all these little puppies? Let's all imagine puppies. And then they go, I see the puppies. Yeah, I see the puppies. Don't we want them to be happy? Yeah, we want the puppies to be happy. Okay, now turn that around towards you. You are the puppies. Can you feel that? <laughs> Find something that you love right? If it's whales, dolphins, cats, birds, whatever it is, and then you imagine that wishing, because you have to familiarize yourself with the vibration of unconditional love. See, meta is not selfish. It doesn't say you, you, not you. No, no. It's just, it's just radiates. It is, everyone is included. It's the warm heart. It's the heart that just wishes well for wellness sake, right? It just cares. So this is a quality of being. This is what the Buddha talked about. He said it's boundless, this quality. So for some people, the phrases are too conceptual. If you can feel the feeling tone, right? You can just feel, eventually it is just all feeling anyway. The phrases drop away on meta retreats and we just emanate that. But if, but initially we have to get the crank kind of going. You know those cars in the 20s that they would see, you'd have to like crank it up and then you see someone jump in and take off? I mean, Model T, Fords. That's what we're doing with the phrases. We're sort of cranking it up. So find someone who's juicy. You could say it for your guru, your teacher, someone you love, someone easy. You start there. May you be happy. We borrow them until we feel that that feeling is a little bit happening. Oh, wait, I feel something. Love, kindness. I'm wishing someone well. This is actually profound. Not a lot of people feel this a lot during the day. This is, you know, and what happens is then we feel better. There's nothing more than I love to do than love you because I'm loving me in that moment. And I'm loving my mind in that moment. <laughs> so that you can use different, so I gave you a few suggestions in there you can use. But see, use yourself as a child. Most people that cracks them open, right? Because they, they can't help but wish well. So um, it's already 9.02, so I should stop there. I can go on and on for months talking about this quality and all the nuances and how to do it, and then we would all do it in my ideal world for long periods. <laughs> but you can find so much online. Go to Dharma Seed and, and look at, do some of the meta meditations just to become familiar. And just, you can practice it. You can do it while you're walking. It's helpful just to take five or ten minutes a day and just, and even no matter what happens, don't stop. So you do it, just remember the three purifications. You might do it and then rage comes. Just keep sitting. Numbness. I feel nothing. It's dead, slab, it, something is happening. It's important to realize something is happening in that. And then it could be tremendous sorrow could come. 
right? And yet that doesn't make sense, but it just comes. We just allow that rage, sorrow, numbness. That's always working on those levels, and it all seems to come from right in the center. So, so okay, friends, good luck. <laughs> I'll tell Howie I gave this meta transmission. He'll be happy. <laughs> Anyway, it was really lovely, and um, I wish you all lovely rest of the evening, and yeah, many blessings. Om Mani Padme Hum. Metta. For all beings. Thank you. Good luck! <laughs>